Hi, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Deep Dive Books podcast. Today, we will be discussing an essay from Emil Chioran's book, The Temptation to Exist, printed in 1964. Emil Chioran was a philosopher, aphorist, and essayist from Romania, who wrote in both French and Romanian. His writing is renowned for its style, aphorisms, and persistent philosophical pessimism. The name of the essay is Dealing with the Mystics. Emile begins the essay by criticizing our compulsive need to look for rational systems of thinking in mystical texts. These are texts that are designed to appeal to faculties that lie outside of reason. The sentiments and attitudes of an author cannot solely be understood through the application of reason. The need to both impose rational order and unity in a text only diminishes the enigmatic playfulness of a text. When we read Angelus Silesius, a German priest and mystic, God is presented through an array of contradictory qualities, moods, and sentiments. The paradoxical tension that is created is what helps us understand and ultimately experience the sacramental nature of things. God in a mystical text is presented in so many aspects that it is difficult to identify the true one. For these aspects are reflections of the subjective and spiritual states of the author. Forcing rational unity onto the text is to drain its capacities for personal illumination. The theologian and scholar are appalled by the poetical insanities in a mystical text. They fight to compress the meaning and the imaginative anarchy of the text into a rational system of ideas. They are what Emile calls manics of rigor, and they simply cannot understand that for the mystic, the idea of God is always incomplete, one constantly changing against the weight of personal and collective experience. Take the example of death as expressed by Silesius. In one section, death is associated with evil, and in another section, death is associated with good. This is because death is always in a state of becoming within us. It can never be interpreted as an existentially settled question on the raw plane of experience. To insist on an exact point of view is to have missed the point that mystics experience neither their ecstasies nor their disgusts within the limits of a definition. No moment of excitation, hysteria, despondency is the same. The identity of words cannot relay to us perfectly the inner experience of an individual's encountering of God. As Emile puts it, there are a thousand perceptions of nothing and only one word to translate them. The mystic is all too aware of the rational limits of language in conveying his spiritual experiences. By purposefully combining imagery, sensibility, and sensation through incomprehensible juxtapositions, the mystic rebels against the imprisonment of experience by language and communicates with us through an imagination that has found its escape from reason. 
There is a sort of contemporary cynicism that we bring to our readings of the mystics, states Emil, which leads us to see these mystics as having lost the instinct to apprehend reality realistically, as people who have been broken by sorrow, people who have embraced helplessness in a hapless world. This could not be further from the truth, states Emil. These are people who fought for faith and attacked God head on. There is nothing weak about an individual who wishes to appropriate heaven for himself. It may be completely irrational and incomprehensible to us, but for Emil, to see in it a defect of will or a weakness of will is to make an incredibly stupid and arrogant error. Few people can hold the paradoxical tensions that gentleness, proselytism, servility, and radicalism generate. The historical energy of the Reformation, states Emil, found its expression through the instrumentalization of these tensions. In the case of Germany, it provided an entire set of peoples the spiritual momentum to individualize. The spiritual drama between man and God is the backdrop to finding individual and collective expression. And far from religious sentiment shackling it, it liberates and throws the question of freedom out into the world. The mystic turns towards the intemporal, the great holding station of the spiritual instinct and spectacularly seizes a form of space and time that attests only to the brilliant madness of his conviction and will. The interior brilliance of such an instinct is qualitatively different from what Emile terms the doctrines of decadence. Systems of thought that render the absolute or would have us think of the absolute as some far-flung cosmic event, too removed and too remote from the daily business of human experience. Emile sees such doctrines as decadent because they can do nothing to energize the human will and in fact induce sterility of action into its adherence. There is no possibility of us strengthening the will through some sort of doctrine of decadence. They turn the question of God into an arid intellectual exercise. They impede us from using passion which is a powerful force of change in trying to reshape either the world or ourselves. If one lives with the belief that God is not imminent, that God cannot be accessed through the exercise of personal will, then of what use is such a belief? The question of God must stimulate our passion in the here and now. It must become an imminent question. It must become the only question. The absolute is only ever the absolute if we are absolutely concerned with it. The saints are people who refuted any doctrine of decadence. God, heaven, and spiritual liberation was to be fought for now. To reduce the question of spirituality to endless intellectual debate was to resist the incredible personal changes that belief induces. Emil states, if you are going to believe, then go all the way. Annihilate yourself through the sublime experiences that belief has to offer.
Otherwise, why even bother? Emile calls saints and mystics a phenomenon of nature. By this, he means that every adversity in the life of a mystic was seen as a sort of excess, an opportunity to elevate oneself above the biological limitations or urges of hunger, sleep, and sex. The mystic's technology of liberation was to use the body against the body, to strengthen mind and spirit through an absolute immersion into its terrors, fragilities, and limitations. This is very different from the mechanical technology of our age, a sort of false technology of liberation, whose sole purpose is to enable escape from true existential immersion into the terrors and limitations of life. Any descent into terror through modern technology is always controlled or programmed. Fear becomes a sort of commercial experience, safe for us to extract no real sense of suffering from, and risky enough for us to experience some sort of extreme sensory stimulation. This is, of course, very different from the mystic's technology of liberation, where the descent into existential terror is total and brutal. Therefore, the contemporary idea of mystics being weak is an arrogant one, according to Emile. Few can be found who can emulate their ferocity of discipline, and there are few who possess their quotient of inner strength. We must not think that mystics were people who strove to practice the virtues of equilibrium. No, they practiced the virtues of disequilibrium. Where we strive to protect the consistency of our ego, they strove to wound it and subject it to punishments and humiliations so extreme, well, that it surpasses even the most perverse of imaginations. They believed that God owed them everything, his glory, his mercy, his eternity. All their suffering was an offering to take what they demanded. People who were willing to hurtle themselves into an abyss of complete destruction are mad and inconsistent with our contemporary culture of reason. If we are honest though, we cannot in good faith continue to see these saints and mystics as pathetic and pitiful. If we do, we are possibly looking for a way to justify the incredible weakness of will that modern culture has instilled in us. We are small people with small goals, small minds, fatigued with a false sense of success. The egotistical depictions of our intelligence are disproportionate to whatever we believe we have achieved individually. It is all too easy to assume a position of arrogance in the modern age. If we conduct an honest inner interrogation, we will find that if we crack open the shell of the modern human being, there is nothing close to the seething energy or savagery of will possessed by the historical saint or mystic. Beneath the husk of the modern personality, there is nothing close or equivalent to the conviction or will possessed by a mystic or saint. Beneath the shell of the modern personality, it's possible that we may find a sludge of impressions, images, and sounds, effluvium that throws out the debris of half-digested cultural products into the disposal site that we call a personality in the modern age. Is it not ironic, then, 
that it is the mystic who is considered pathetic, small, and insular, and not modern man? Who is more paralyzed by the inner anxieties of nothingness and meaninglessness, us or the mystic? Emile states that the answer is clear, all too clear. The sense of nothingness experienced by the philosopher and the mystic are different. For the mystic, nothingness is a summons, a call to experience in the words of Emile, a luminous annihilation beyond the limits of thought. There is a sort of wreck of consciousness experienced by the mystic. They destroy themselves and their consciousness only to regain themselves, only to have fortified their consciousness. This is to the mystic the necessary condition for transcendence. Here the mind is abolished, its anxious products thrown onto a burning heap of conditioned reflexes and social illusions. They remake God in the image of this great wreck. Again, hard to understand, because it is so far outside the sapped and drugged consciousness of the modern mind that to imagine its experience is difficult. Everything in the world around the mystic becomes denatured. Its givenness and naturalness is stripped. And in its place, after a wreck of consciousness has been achieved and through which we have realized transcendence, in the place of everything around us, is implanted significations of unity. The great realization of truth after a wreck of consciousness is that nothing is, but everything is. An amusing point made by Emile is that the mystic is not only skeptical of any outside interference that seeks to regulate his relations with God, but is also skeptical of God meddling in his interpretations of faith and action. This is someone who barely tolerates Jesus. The mystic loves to innovate and is someone who loves to challenge the God of the commons. The public conception of God will constantly be the subject of his wit, sarcasm, and ridicule. Without the antagonism that the mystic provides, states Emile, the structure of collective faith would collapse. The heresy of the mystic is what rehabilitates faith, is what gives it life. The doctrine of faith animates itself through the heretical challenges of the mystic. He is a far better provocateur against doctrinal faith than any external adversary, for he uses consecrated language to disrupt it. The mystical phenomenon for Emile has many pretenders, people who try to replicate the intensities of mysticism, but end up becoming preposterous caricatures. The pretender creates mystical art for trite human appreciation. Human appreciation is the end of his ambition. The mystic creates art for appreciation elsewhere he is looking to create an art that can escape or survive the disintegration of his experiences. The poet revels and plays in the world of surfaces, the space where he can witness and observe the unfolding of creation and decay 
in the world of time. The mystic extinguishes himself through experiences that reflect the occult origin of creation and destruction. In other words, whereas the poet will play inside of time, the mystic will play outside of time. Saints are not meditative souls, says Emile. They are too fierce a people to stop at meditation. Descending into the foundation of things requires more than meditation. It requires an inextinguishable passion for getting to the root of life, the sort of passion that was snuffed out a long time ago in the modern personality. Where there is a passion to deliriously ascend and descend, the terrorizing and audacious scales of heaven and hell, in the modern personality, there is an enfeebled and life-denying nihilism. The call is clear to Emile. The restrictions of modern good sense must give way to the abandon of the saints. We must fling ourselves to the darkness of the light with incensed impatience, an impatience with the utter smallness of self that we anxiously carry the weight of, our need to assign limits to endeavors before they have been undertaken, and the tedious social certitudes of life that stifle movement towards anything of personal or public significance. We do not even know how to experience madness, for it is far too measured. We have forgotten how to ruin and annihilate ourselves in the pursuit of anything passionate. The saints and the mystics, states Emile, are giants. They shatter their bodies and their souls to abandon what we spend our whole lives miserably preserving. It is not a belief in our superiority that compels us to laugh at the saints. No, it is the fear that we have lost the courage to devote ourselves to anything that even remotely resembles a unifying purpose. There is no ambition outside of experiencing the anesthetizing effects of modern consumption that we could possibly devote ourselves to. It makes sense that modern man would deride the past, for there is nothing left in him that can approximate to the strength of will needed to have survived in it. Emile states that the saint is a demon, but in the service of the good. They suffer and love to suffer, but unlike our egotistically induced suffering, they use suffering to acquire a blinding inner freedom. Our suffering is experienced to reduce freedom, to look for any way to avoid the necessary choices that freedom requires. Emile sees the saints as monsters. They are aberrations, aberrations, distortions of nature, so grotesque that we are compelled to sanitize their lives of their madness and turn them into benign idols of piety, figures that serve what we previously termed a doctrine of decadence. In the modern era, a doctrine of decadence is one that looks to create a set of comfortable beliefs, comfortable because they do not demand conviction, something that gives us the illusion of belief, but without any of the suffering that commitment to a belief demands. Again, it is symptomatic of our modern illness 
with avoiding the burden of existence, avoiding the weight of choice, and substituting the suffering of independent action with personal comfort. For Emile, we must learn to live with cosmic passion, a pride for rebellion. We must commit ourselves to purposeful suffering. We must ascend into the abyss to fall into heaven. We must break outside of the modern idea of safety and politeness and rush headlong into the irreverent adventure of the abyss. Let us, states Emile, learn to live with the intoxicating madness of the saints once again. Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope to see you again next time. Cheers from all of us at the Deep Dive Podcast.